I now request uh, Ramakrishnan ji to uh, turn on uh, his uh, video. Uh, hello. Yes. Good afternoon, Ramakrishnan ji. Yes. Um, can you so hear me? Yes, we can. So let me okay. quickly uh, read that one line <laughs> uh, introduction about you, and then I would request you to get started. Uh, so Dr. Ramakrishnan Sitaraman has a doctorate in microbiology, and he's also a keen student of Indian and uh, world uh, history. Today, he's going to talk to Conrad uh, Elst about uh, um, you know, his work on ancient India. So over to you, uh, Dr. Ramakrishnan Sitaraman and Conrad. Thank you. Thank you. We have about 45 minutes, I guess. Yes, I mean, uh, I, yes, I request you to not go beyond that, if possible, to cut it to 40 minutes. 40 minutes, okay. Yeah. Whatever you say. No sure. Problem. Thank you. Okay. So I have my hand the clock. So namaste. Uh, welcome. And uh, welcome to the session titled Debates on Ancient History. Uh, I will be asking Dr. Elst questions about the debates that surround the origins and dispersal of Indo-European languages. Uh, and I'll focus on the Indian subcontinent or Bharatavarsha as a self-descriptive goes. The questions are grouped into three categories. We start with queries on the background of the debate. Then we move on to some aspects of contemporary scholarship and conclude with questions on some implications of such studies. Given the limited time, obviously, the coverage will be far from comprehensive, but we hope that this glimpse of Indo-European studies as it applies to the Indian subcontinent will encourage and enthuse researchers from diverse fields such as archeology, span linguistics, archeogenetics, paleoclimatology, and so on, to bring their collective expertise to bear on this problem of Indo-European language origins and dispersal. So uh, with, without further ado, we start with the questions on the, firstly, on the background of this debate. So, uh, Dr. Elst, what are the fundamental questions that the field of Indo-European studies seeks to answer? Well, <clears throat> in a way, it, um, it's very modest. It simply seeks to describe things as they have been, as they are now also. But, you know, the historical part, which is the part that interests me, um, partly has the same goal as history, namely to reconstruct things as they have really been. Uh, of course, that's a difficult thing in, you know, in history. Any new discovery can jeopardize the scenario that you painstakingly built. Uh, moreover, our information is always incomplete. So we can only approximate things how they have really been. Nevertheless, that's what we try to do as much as possible, namely to establish the relations between the different Indo-European languages and where possible uh, reconstruct an original Indo-European language where from all these uh, later languages descend and map out uh, its relations with other languages. And then by now, of course, we've reached the stage where some linguists take it a step further and try to establish the relation between different language families. 
So, you know, you can say that Proto-Indo-European must have been spoken 6,000 years ago. But if you go back like 10,000, 15,000 years ago, you find that Indo-European was related to Uralic, to Altaic. If you go back far enough to Dravidian and so on. Um, so <clears throat> um, that's, of course, you know, often still very speculative, but very gradually, and I'm optimistic about that, uh, we will map out deeper and deeper into the past how languages uh, were and how they relate to each other. So obviously there have been many theories about how these Indo-European languages originated and dispersed. So could you briefly tell us what were the competing theories that were proposed and have been conclusively discarded? And what are the contenders that are still in the race today? Yeah. Well, the uh, very first hunch of the people who discovered the Indo-European family, and I think mostly of the French Jesuit scholar Carnot, uh, whose work was known to William Jones. So William Jones made it public, but it is Carnot who uh, mapped it out, who, who really uh, put on a scholarly pedestal the theory of Indo-European kinship, which had already been intuited earlier by some traveling traders who went to India and noticed the similarities between Konkani, Gujarati, whatever they found, and their own Italian, French, whatever. But so Kurdu, uh, really put it on a scholarly footing. This is in around 1770. And um, so at that time, the hunch of most people was, you know, that all these languages came from India. And this was natural because they saw Sanskrit as um, a more original form of Indo-European than Greek and Latin. Uh, like, for example, in Sanskrit, you have three numbers. In Latin and Greek, you have only two. Though you do find here and there a few word forms that clearly show a dual origin. And so you can see that it's not Sanskrit that has later invented this dual number. No, it is Latin and Greek that have lost it. Or Sanskrit has eight cases uh, of the substantive of the noun. And uh, Latin has only six, Greek has only five, German has only four, English has only one. Um, so these cases were lost in the other languages and Sanskrit preserved them. So they thought, well, Sanskrit is clearly the closest to the reconstructed Proto-Indo-European. And then they reduced from that, not entirely logically, then India must be the land of origin. Now, later as they realized that Sanskrit was not the original either, though closer to it, 
Nevertheless, the, the country of origin may have been different than India. And so in 1834, um, August von Schlegel came out with a theory that the country of origin was not India, but somewhere in or around the Caucasus mountains. Now, after that, you see, once India had been given up, then uh, many theories came to the fore that it was uh, in the Northern European plain, Germany and Poland, that is, has still recently been defended by uh, Lothar Kilian, and it's been very popular, it's still very popular among, you know, Euro-nationalists, who believe that Indo-European is the basis of European identity. Uh, but in the scholarly world, it's uh, practically given up. Then um, in the 1990s, there was a, a strong um, sympathy for Colin Renfrew's theory that it was in Anatolia. But mostly, he was an archaeologist. And so most linguists said this is impossible because the um, Anatolian language family uh, that belongs to Indo-European with uh, Hittite is clearly an immigrant language. It has borrowed a lot from the local Hopi language and um, it behaves like what you would expect from an immigrant language. And um, so that was not, that was, you know, that was taken into account, but ultimately was given up. And also the archaeology doesn't bear it out ultimately. Um, but the important thing about it is that Colin Renfrew associated the expansion of Indo-European, which in his mind was from Anatolia, with an important technological discovery, namely the invention of agriculture. So he says it is the first agriculturist who took Indo-European outside. You see the population practicing agriculture has a great advantage. You see produces its own food is therefore more stable in its uh, food provision. And so it, uh, it will expand, it will grow fast. And so it seeks new pastures in the Balkans, in the Caucasus, and so ultimately in Iran and India. The, the good thing about it is that, you know, this is reasonable. If you have a, an important growth of population, there must be a mechanism that explains this. In Africa, this is very clear, the Bantu language, uh, is associated with the first population in Africa that started practicing agriculture. And so the Bantu language is expanded from West Africa all the way to South Africa. Um, but that's not the case here. Uh, you can also see it linguistically. The terms used for agricultural products and techniques are often not Indo-European. They are invented by the daughter languages at a later stage or borrowed from other languages. So it's not agriculture. 
And the Indo-European family is also not that old. The start of agriculture is like 10,000 years ago. Uh, the start of Indo-European is accepted by all the scholars as not being older than 6,000 BC. Um, so, uh, that Anatolian alternative has fallen away, and now practically everybody is back to what was started by Schlegel in 1834, uh, around the Caucasus Mountains, in the Pontic steppes in Eastern Ukraine, Western Russia. Uh, so the um, meanwhile, since the 1980s, the out of India theory is back. It's not new. It's not invented by Hindu nationalists or anything. No, it's a, um, a repeat of what was there in the 18th century already. You know, great philosophers like Voltaire, like Immanuel Kant, already said explicitly that India is the place of origin. European culture, as they conceived it, uh, owes its origins to what they say is uh, the riverside of the Ganga. So I think, you know, those are the essential alternatives. There are, of course, rather funny ones. You know, there are even non-Indo-European peoples who took pride in being the origin of the Indo-European uh, family, like Georgia, Armenia. Uh, there was even a theory that uh, Indo-European thought of very highly a century ago, uh, originated in Atlantis. So I'd say why not only I think the evidence for India is a lot better. Okay, thank you. Uh, and uh, since you have talked about these uh, alternative theories, can you just briefly tell us if the Aryan invasion theory was a colonial construct? No, no. <laughs> Which is since a question I've... that comes up very frequently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, since, since I've been asked to uh, answer crisply, you know, I can do it in one word, no. But since you want some explanation, okay, here it is. Um, the very first reconstructed language family was not Indo-European, but Uralic. You see, this was already in the 17th century. Uh, Uralic languages are Finnish, Hungarian, Estonian, and then a number of little languages inside Russia. Mordvin, Udmurt, and so on. You've never heard about them. And um, so a few of these are mutually understandable. Like Estonian and Finnish are obviously two dialects of what used to be one language. But Hungarian, for example, is not mutually understandable. So there they really had to make a linguistic discovery. These languages have a kinship. And so that led to the establishment of the Uralic family which has not been contested, all the linguists accepted. That was already in the 17th century. All the people uh, discussed are white. The scholars discussed it are white. There was no colonial angle to it. So linguistics as such is not a colonial invention. Then specifically about Indo-European. Um, Again, 
at first they thought India was the land of origin. It was, of course, invented inside India. Isikurdu was a, a Jesuit missionary in South India. Then um, William Jones, of course, was a judge in Kolkata. And uh, so it's, it's an Indian invention in a way, though the actors were not native Indians. And um, so they thought very highly of India. At that time, India was still a mysterious country in the distance, a very rich country where jewelry came from and perfumes. And um, so India was thought of very highly. Uh, people also knew uh, from their studies of Greek philosophy that even the Greek philosophers thought highly of India. And so at that time, you see, there was not the colonial angle that came in later. In the second half of the um, 19th century, India had descended to the status of a mere colony. So that already conditioned the spirits of people not to think too highly of India anymore. And so by that time, scholars had independently thought up the Caucasian homeland theory, at any rate, any non-Indian homeland theory. And so the British saw the uses that this theory would have. So they didn't concoct anything. In fact, I think uh, Mount Stewart Elphinstone in about 1840 um, wrote against the then new theory that the homeland was outside of India. He defended India as the homeland, whereas he was a colonial administrator par excellence. So uh, it is only later that the British started to see the uses that this theory could have, namely of uh, reducing the emergent uh, freedom movement as only a pastime of high caste Hindus who had themselves invaded India just as the British had. And so uh, that was their reason. Indians themselves often also welcomed this theory because it put them on a par with the British. They said, okay, the cities, uh, you know, they, they often shared the colonial prejudice against Africans, for example. And so they said, okay, this puts us on a higher level than the, 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 the real savages, as they called them in those days. And so ultimately we have as, as much right as the British to rule ourselves. So they interpreted it differently from what the British did, but they also saw the uses of this Aryan invasion theory. Uh, but so ultimately to sum up, no, it was not a colonial concoction. Thank you. So we now go on to some questions related to contemporary scholarship. Mm -hmm. uh, so what are the implications of the discovery of various Bronze Age steppe cultures that have been found on this Aryan debate? And uh, as the genetics of these cultures uh, actually proven any kind of Aryan invasion or not, especially into India? Well, 
you see these, these discoveries of the step cultures are important, but I think that the uh, right conclusions also not always clear, but you see, I think the right conclusions uh, have often not been drawn. Like in the uh, Andronovo step culture in, in Kazakhstan thereabouts, um, you do find some Vedic elements. And so the scholars say, oh yeah, this must be the Indian Aryans on the way to India. Whereas these data can better be interpreted as, you see some leftovers of Indian culture by people emigrating from India on the way to Europe. Um, but so that's, that's, that's of course debatable. Indian scholars have hardly worked on this. You see inside India, they have very thoroughly shown that there is no sign of an invasion, that there is no new culture appearing at some point, that all the developments can be explained from uh, local uh, facts on the ground. Um, whereas uh, what is happening in Afghanistan, in Uzbekistan and so on, is also important, but has not been sufficiently explored yet. Afghanistan, of course, is a very important uh, country in this regard. But you see, due to war circumstances for like the past 40 years, not much has been done there. Uh, so I hope this uh, gets off the ground again, because there are many, many useful things to be found. Then if you go to Europe, there, of course, there are plenty of archaeological findings that show very clearly, definitively, I mean, nobody doubts it anymore, that Indo-European inside Europe all came from what they call the Yamna culture or the pit grave culture, where people were buried vertically um, in, in Eastern Ukraine, Western Russia. So that is very definite. And you see, many people say, oh, this is the homeland. But that is only because they look at things from a European perspective. For Europe, this was indeed the homeland, except that it was only a secondary home. And so some scholars now already recognize this was a secondary homeland, though they still have different opinions about what then was the primary home. Like I know that you're probably going to ask about um, David Reich, geneticist who has also contributed to this debate. Well, he writes that the Yamna culture was in fact uh, a settlement uh, originating in Northern Iran, outside Europe. So at any rate, looking at it from Europe, the origin definitely is on the farthest southeastern rim of Europe or even beyond Europe. Yeah, so that's certain and that's very useful because if it's a secondary homeland, it may be a settlement originating in India. But then has genetics proved any kind of invasion into India? Or do we still await some more data? Well, we certainly await more data. 
because just the magnitude of the data presently used is very small compared to the populations we are talking about. Uh, but and so initially, I was very skeptical of this uh, these genetic findings because often um, geneticists who no doubt are competent in their own field uh, bring you know collect some data and then explain these data through theories that they've heard from their colleagues in uh, in uh, you know historical studies uh, in biology and so they they did not give new proof they that was circular proof they simply reproduced the theories already prevalent um now of course meanwhile genetics has advanced and certainly reached a level where i can't follow the technical details but i try to follow you know their conclusions now the last few years the r innovation camp has been very enthusiastic about findings especially by david reich from harvard that uh, in the period that they usually associate with the r innovation around 1500 bc there was actually an influx of genes from central asia i've seen a figure that in the male population in India, about 17% shows genetic signs of originating outside India. Well, you know, as an old hand in this debate, I am not impressed. You see, if these data are true, because also inside the geneticist world, many people dispute them, but let's, you know, for the sake of argument now, let's accept it. Okay, there was an influx of um, Western genes inside India. Well, why not? We know within Indian history, where we have written sources, that there have been invasions of the Scythians, of the Huns, of the Greeks, of the Kushanas, uh, there have been settlements by the Parsis, by Syrian Christians. Then there have been the Turks, the Arabs, the Afghans, and so on. And they all left their genes in India. Mostly in the male line, because mostly invaders are bands of young warriors on their own and who end up marrying local women. So, you know, these 70% foreign genes are accounted for. But the important thing is that none of these groups impose their language on the natives or even maintain their language for themselves. They all assimilate it. There is no you know, Greek personal law board or there is no uh, minority pressure group for the Kushanas in India. No, they simply assimilated. In a few cases, also identifiably, like they say that the Jats are really the Geitai, like the Masa Geitai, that the Rajputs are originally Scythians and so on. Uh, or they just, you know, dissolved into the Indian population 
And um, why not? You see, people who say, yeah, there was an influx in the time of the uh, Aryan invasion. Well, they accept the burden of proof that their immigrant population did not do what all the others did, which is to assimilate into the far greater, often far more advanced Indian population. Because what we're talking about is not the migration of human beings that has happened all the time. What we're talking about is the migration of languages. And so people who say, oh, genetics has proven the Aryan invasion, who even use the term, it's been used many times during the debate of the last few years, the Aryan gene, you know, R1A1, uh, a gene marking the Aryan population. Now, they don't know what they're talking about. The only thing they prove is that they themselves don't understand what this debate is about. You know, their human beings may have moved, but what is the story of the languages? Has the language Sanskrit originated elsewhere or not? Okay. So, how are we doing for time? Um, how many questions do you have? Uh, I just want one final question. If you sure, go ahead, go ahead, yeah. Okay, so what are the implications of the invasionist versus immigrationist theories for both India and Hinduism? Well, strictly speaking, none. You see, countries can perfectly have a national feeling, a sense of national identity, all while being immigrants. In fact, that's the situation of many, maybe most countries, you know, America very obviously, but many countries that you wouldn't think of, like Hungary, the Hungarians came from the Ural Mountains, settled in Hungary. Uh, Romania was created on the basis of a Dakian population, a Scythian sub-tribe uh, by the Roman emperor Trajanus, who is revered there as the father of the fatherland. So very many countries have this, this uh, immigration story. And so in India that, you know, ought not to have been a problem. Indeed, you see many nationalists in the 20th century believed in the Aryan invasion. Like for instance, the historian Zias Agarwal. Um, in fact, it is he who originated the phrase, you know, when dealing with the uh, apparent massacre uh, of people in Mohenjo-daro, it's he who coined the phrase, Indra stands accused. You see, the, the Vedic people have invaded here and they have killed all these people. He was a very firm believer in a very hard version of the Aryan invasion theory, yet he was an Indian nationalist. Veer Savarkar believed in the Aryan invasion, not strongly, uh, but, but it was just around, so he, he felt like he couldn't ignore it. Uh, so strictly speaking, that need not be important. We're talking about something that happened like 4,000 years ago. What are we talking about? Why should this be a problem? 
So, you know, people like um, this uh, Malikarjuna Kharge, who sat on the floor of parliament, that the upper castes originate outside India, they should go back to Central Asia. Uh, I mean, they are talking a language that to most people in the world would sound very strange, very bizarre. Why do these issues of three, 4,000 years ago have any importance today? Um, so it need not be important, but circumstances are that it has become important. And so in that sense, it is a, a good thing. It discards a number of artificial problems for India if the out of India theory is proven. Thank you very much for all your detailed answers. So as I understand it, uh, you tend to favor the uh, dispersal of these languages from India, that is the out of India theory. However, you have also cautioned us frequently on the mutual deafness of the invasionist and immigrationist camps. And uh, you have stressed that we are still very far from having a coherent and consistent model of Indo-European language origins uh, that truly integrates all the multiple lines of evidence, such as archaeology, language, genetics, mm. literary, and so on. So the question remains wide open for any researcher who wants to take it up. So thank you very much, Dr. Ellis. Thank you, Dr. Ramakrishnanji. Uh, thank you. Uh, that was a very short uh, session, Konradji. Uh, you know, we couldn't. I know this could go on and on for almost a day or two, <laughs> no, mm. but uh, I think this was a good summary. At least you got a chance to touch upon some of the, the important uh, conclusions. Um, uh, you know, those who are more interested could, of course, read your uh, book from 2018. Uh, you know, uh, that gives a good summary of uh, things mm. so far. I'd now like to, um, so Ramakrishnanji, thank you very much.